Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Megan Lucas, author of Songbirds and Stray Dogs. Step Post columnist with Lit Reactor says of the book, quite possibly my favorite debut novel of the year. Songbirds and Stray Dogs has everything I love about Southern fiction. Atmosphere, a deep attention to place, and most importantly, tough, unforgettable characters. Spearheaded by the indomitable Jolene. Megan Lucas is the very definition of a badass female grit lit author. Megan starts the show with a reading from early in the book where the protagonist's religious guardian aunt reminds her who she belongs to, and by that, she means Jesus. Remember who you belong to, Rachel called, then drove away, arm waving out the window. Jolene sighed. Rachel wasn't even looking at her. Her aunt met Jesus. That's who Jolene belonged to. It seemed to be one of those loose ownerships, Jolene thought, spitting out the contents of her mouth. Like a co-op, a condo association, part-time ownership anyway the kind where no one really takes any responsibility for the problems or the upkeep. There was blood, bright red and spots of pink foam on the pavement. She told Rachel she was meeting girlfriends, but that had been a lie. She just needed Rachel to think that she had friends, nice friends, girls who went to church with their parents on Sunday, volunteered with children or old people. Jolene couldn't break her aunt's heart by telling her that girls like that didn't want to be friends with the orphan dropped on her spinster aunt's doorstep the doorstep of a tiny cottage that the aunt cleaned houses to pay for. It didn't help that the girl was plain, her absent mother a junkie, the aunt fat, and that none of them had ever owned anything even vaguely trendy. Jolene had heard some of those supposedly nice girls talking once, in middle school, through the stall in the bathroom where they didn't know she was there. They'd laughed about how wide her ass looked in the gypsy skirts that her aunt had found in the attic and given her. Jolene had thought she looked cool, retro, maybe even a little bohemian. She was wrong. Jolene longed to tell Rachel that going to church didn't make someone less likely to notice that she'd never been to a dentist, her shoes were a little boy size, or comment on the fact that her lunches were always leftovers from Rachel's gig cleaning restaurants. No one else gets fried chicken from Biddy's from lunch every other day, Rachel would say. You should feel special. People come from all over South Carolina for that cornbread. High school was a couple of years behind her, but even now, alone, Jolene's cheeks were hot with shame. She'd emerged from school with no one she'd call a friend. She'd hidden her embarrassment over not being invited to a single graduation party by working as much as possible. 
She was too busy to have friends, she told Aunt Rachel, knowing that her aunt understood the desire to work and respected Jolene's rigor. Jolene knew that this was the one thing her aunt was proud of. It might be the only thing. Lately, though, Rachel had been obsessed with Jolene's lack of social life, imploring her to make more friends than that old colored lady and that no good boy. Megan Lucas is a Canadian who found home in the mountains of North Carolina. Born and raised on a small island in northern Ontario, she now lives with her husband and her three children in Hendersonville, North Carolina. She misses the Great Lakes, the butter tarts, and the blueberries, but not the snow. Megan teaches English composition and creative writing at Asheville Buncombe Technical Community College and is the fiction editor at Barron Magazine. Her short work has appeared in the Santa Fe Writers Project, the New Southern Fugitives, Still, The Journal, and the Blue Mountain Review, among others. She's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and she won the 2017 Sith Prize for Fiction. Her first novel, Songbirds and Stray Dogs, was published by Main Street Rag Publishing in August 2019. Megan loves coffee, wine, houseplants, concerts, cheesecake, and bookstores. When she's not teaching, writing, or entertaining small people, you can find her with her face in a book. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Landis. I'm I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I like that. Coffee, wine, houseplants, concerts, cheesecake, and bookstores. Mm-hmm. Those, those yeah. are my things. Now, you are, we're, we're recording this uh, during April of 2020 when we're all sheltering in place and uh, you mentioned small people does that mean you're homeschooling now I am I am the headmistress of pajama academy (laughs) how's that working out it's you know my actual students uh, call me professor lucas and the other ones are just like the small ones are like hey I don't I don't know how to do this Uh, but yeah yeah. (laughs) so I I would say that there's a difference in the respect level yeah. That I'm I'm used to, but uh, I have great kids. They're really well behaved, and and they love school, so that's very helpful. So is the curriculum harder for the uh, college kids or for the uh, young 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 kids? Uh, the math that my third grader is doing is is just about beyond me. So <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, let's let's take just a moment about you. You may be my first Canadian author on the show. So cool. uh, can you say something Canadian? You know. Uh, well, I've, I've heard that I say process incorrectly uh, <laughs> okay. for where I live here in Western North Carolina. Um, but I, I, you know, I also like butter tarts and uh, maple syrup and yeah. a boot, right? A boot, isn't that the one? I, I say yeah. about, but I, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you said you missed the Great Lakes, the butter tarts and the blueberries, but not the snow. Now, does a butter tart taste as good as it sounds? I'm not sure I know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. It's, yeah. it's basically uh pecan pie without the pecans. 
okay. That does sound uh, good. And so some, sometimes some Canadians put raisins in. I like raisin ones, but that's one of those like divisive things, right? Where some mm. people are like about the raisins and some people are not. Mm. All right. So you, you, you come from Canada. Um, from your bio, I see that you have gone from one degree to another. You have a BA in history. You have a, a degree in uh, curriculum and instruction. Uh, you have an MA in English and, and creative writing. Uh, did you just love school or did you just not know what to do with your life? I mean, <laughs> well, you, you kind of hit it right there, Landis. I, um, after my BA in history, I, I thought about actually going to law school. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, uh, yeah, but um, I was I was a little afraid of the price tag, yeah. um, so I I decided to to be a teacher and and I applied uh, a little bit later than you normally. I made this decision later than most people usually do for going to grad school, and so thankfully uh, schools in the U.S. Uh, accept uh, students a little bit later in the year than than schools in Canada do, and so I I went to grad school in Michigan, and met my husband who is uh, an American citizen, and so you know it was where do where do we go from here and mm-hmm. and he yeah, well, he makes more money than I do, so that was an easy decision. That's good. Well, you know if you're gonna you hit it on nail on the head, I think if you're gonna go into law school these days, uh, you've got to really be committed to being a lawyer. My dad told me. Back in the day when I went many years ago, uh, well, you can do anything with a law degree. And that might be true, but now you got to pay a price tag to get it. And and they also tend to suck the uh, creative energy out of you over, after a while. You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 you know, you've, for being a writer and a novelist, uh, you're getting a good start here with uh, teaching and doing the things you love and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and I really, I think there's a connection there between being a, a good educator and being a, uh, a writer. There's a storytelling telling element, right? Where you have to sort of engage your audience and um, convince them of, of what you're trying to tell them. And so I, I think I use a lot of the same skills, but I started in a seventh grade classroom. And then uh, after I had children discovered that I could not pay daycare on a North Carolina teacher's salary. And so I stayed home with them and, and went back to school uh, to focus on writing. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, that, yeah. I understand that story. And uh, hopefully, um, we will be paying our teachers more, uh, both at the uh, primary level and the uh, secondary level. But uh, hey, let's 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 not dwell too much on the, the educational aspect of this because you don't really, I guess you don't have to have a degree to write a book, right? So uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about your debut novel. Congratulations, first of all. Thank this, you. This book, yeah. Uh, you got uh, that nice review I mentioned at the outset of the show. Lit Reactor. Uh, this uh, columnist says quite possibly her favorite debut novel of the year. And I like this. Megan Lucas, the very definition of a badass female grit lit author. So is that the first time you've been described as a badass female grit lit author? <laughs> all, all of those together. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You might have been described as a badass or maybe a female or maybe a grit lit author, but not all together in one thing, right? Right, right. I usually try to use grit lit myself when I'm telling people about my book because I think a lot of times they they see the cover and they hear the title and and I'm female and so they think it's you know not uh, not quite as gritty as as it is and and also in her review she talks about there being some tough unforgettable characters and when I was reading this book it was hard you know to turn away from some of these characters which is a good thing because you're kind of invested in their in their future and what's going on but let's let's talk about these characters a little bit to sort of ground our audience here. 
in this book. Um, your main character is a character named Jolene. Tell us about Jolene. Well, Jolene is, um, she's been orphaned by her mother and she grows up uh, with her very conservative aunt um, who's, who's also a spinster and, and they don't have a lot of money and they live in, in Beaufort. And the aunt also happens to be um, quite religious. And so uh, Jolene gets herself in a little bit of trouble. Um, yep, yep. We'll find, out, <laughs> find out about that in just a second. <laughs> yeah, Jolene gets herself in a little bit of trouble and, yeah. and it's kind of, I don't know, uphill or downhill from there and actually both probably. But um, yeah. And Jolene's aunt who, who has taken care of her, her guardian, uh, because Jolene's mother is out of the picture, uh, has kind of just left Jolene at her, at the footsteps of her aunt. She's uh, she is the uh, religious totem, you know, woman who's gonna make sure that Jolene flies straight. And if she doesn't, well, yeah, she has rules and mm-hmm. expectations, and I I think you learn. Uh, a little bit later in the book, exactly why those why she's so inflexible, and I, I hope it makes her a little bit more sympathetic than she sounds right up at the beginning. But it her rules uh, for Jolene have definitely shaped the the rest of the novel. And and we're going to be getting into you run kind of a couple of parallel stories here because we get through sort of the first part of the book, but then we meet some other characters that are kind of going along and they're going to kind of come together, but there's Chuck and Cash. Tell us about Chuck and Cash. Well, Chuck uh, is from the mountains and born and raised uh, in, in the Hendersonville area where, where I live. And he uh, has had, of course, a you know, interesting past, like, like all you, you want characters to have. And he finds himself uh, currently the guardian of his nephew, Cash, who is uh, 12 or 13 at the beginning of the book. And um, because his sister is a, has an addiction. And, um, and so you find it's, I think it's kind of interesting to show that this sort of, um, strong male character has been put in a guardianship position that he sort of never imagined himself. But I think that he's, he's trying to show that he could have been more, um, than people imagined him to be. Yeah, and, and we've got a little read here coming up in a little bit. Uh, we're going to see something in, in his sort of personality having to deal with, uh, you know, a, a child that maybe he doesn't feel equipped uh, to, to handle. But first, let's start out with uh, how you came up with the idea for this book. You, you used a great creative technique uh, that uh, authors might use but never admit. Uh, t- tell us about uh, this, how you got this idea. So... Um, I like to eavesdrop. Yeah. I think it's a, a great place if you like to write realistic fiction um, to find stories uh, right right on your doorstep. And um, I was in a coffee shop and I heard this conversation behind me where um, this young woman was telling a, a man that she was pregnant and it was his fault. And he was convinced that it was not his fault and and i you know i had just two itty bitty ones like babies at home at the time and i of course am sympathetic with her because man kids are a lot of work even even with you know my husband and their their father who is their father in the picture i couldn't imagine doing it on my own and and so i just started to you know sympathize with her but then of course the author brain starts to take over and you start going like how could this be worse yeah what 
What if she didn't have anywhere to live? What if she didn't have any family support? What if gangsters were chasing her? You know, what if, what if? And then the next thing you know, you have, you have a novel. Yeah, and you've got a, a title here that might be a nod to a, an author as well, Songbirds and Stray Dogs, yeah? Yes, I, well, everybody loves Pat Conroy, but I I really, really love Pat Conroy, and, and I was searching for a, no, a name for this novel, and um, I called it Jolene for a long time because that's what I usually do is, is call my works in progress by the protagonist's first name, but then it started getting really close, and I, I was looking for a home for it. And I was calling it uh, as is the mother, which it comes from a, a Bible verse in Ezekiel. And and then I was reading beach music on the beach in Beaufort mm-hmm. with my family, which is where the book starts. And I was I came across the quote um, that you can see uh, in the epigraph at the beginning. Um, Eternal life seemed especially sweet to folk who had eaten songbirds and stray dogs for dinner and who tried to coax measly crops from fields more granite than loam. And that's, of course, from Pat Conroy's beach music. And I just, I thought it really spoke not only uh, to the sort of religious issues, but also to the poverty that I think uh, pervades this Mm -hmm. story. And I I really felt quite strongly about wanting to include power structures and, and how they have a tendency to keep down people who are already down. Yeah. And you've got Jolene. She is, uh, she's vulnerable. Uh, this mistake um, uh, early in the book is that she's pregnant. So you can have a read here in just a minute about, about that when she goes to her aunt trying to seek support. But if you look at the book cover, which I don't know whether you had any input on this or not, but you've got this uh, empty bird's nest, like she's a young starling about to be kicked out of the nest and she's got a fin for her own. I don't know. That's my image of where we're going here. Yeah. Be right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did thankfully, you know, with a small press, you have a lot more input. And so uh, Scott, who is the, the editor in chief at Main Street Rag and I threw around a lot of ideas and I really like the idea of, you know, using a, a home of a bird, which is a nest, but um, this one's empty. Yeah, it sort of speaks to that. Like, has it been abandoned? Is it in the process of being built? It it sort of opens you up to questions. I think, which I I don't know. I I think writers like questions. Oh yeah, yeah. So let's kind of get into this uh, scene here. Um, We've met Jolene. We've met her aunt uh, in your opening read. She's reminded Jolene, you know, who she belongs to. She belongs to Jesus. Jolene uh, is, you know, she's young at heart and uh, she's gotten with a boy who really doesn't care much for her uh, as a person, probably was just looking uh, to have sex uh, and they got, she got pregnant. She goes to him and he blows her off. So she really doesn't know what to do. And she feels like she has to go to her aunt for support. Right. I think I think where we we meet them uh, at this point in the story, her aunt has has just confronted Jolene um, because she's figured out that she's pregnant, even though Jolene has been trying to hide it for a while. Um, so I guess I guess I'll just jump right in. Jump right in. Rachel rubbed her face with her hands. She looked old, but you know you can't stay. Not now. Not like this. The bottom fell out of Jolene's tiny basket of optimism. We won't be a burden, I promise. You won't even know he, she, we are here. 
I'll be super quiet and I'll take care of everything. It's not about that and you know it. Not that I'm dying to have a wee one here again. But it's not about the screaming in the night and the diapers. It's about not trusting you. The last sentence sliced through Jolene. Leah was a liar and a thief. Jolene wasn't and she'd spent the last 10 years working hard to prove that. All her good intentions were sand in the tide. When you get paid on Friday, I expect you to be gone. I got fired today. Rachel snorted. It felt to Jolene like a knife in the chest. Figures. No reason you can't leave now, I reckon. With that, she stood and walked to the kitchen. Jolene could hear the sounds of dinner preparations as she picked up her box and headed upstairs to her tiny room. Numbness spread over her as she sat on the end of her bed. Wishing she could muster some sort of heat, some anger towards Rachel, she closed her eyes and balled her fist, but there was nothing. A cold, hollow cavern sat in her chest. There were rules, and she had broken them. Plain girls with no money and no family didn't get to break rules. Nothing in her life had ever taught her that exceptions would be made. The inevitable was coming, and yet she had hoped. Rachel had left an old suitcase on her bed. Jolene was thankful for her aunt's kindness, at least in this. Her belongings were meager, but she'd had no way to carry them. Now the old, scuffed orange case held all of her life. All her clothes, her baby things, her alarm clock, an album of clippings from magazines. In her purse, she carried her toothbrush, powder, mascara, her Walkman, and three cassette tapes. Her whole life squeezed into a foot square. Descending the stairs, the suitcase thumping behind her, she hoped she could beg Rachel to let her stay. Maybe they could reach a deal. She went into the kitchen to find her aunt, but the house was empty. The kitchen which, with its tiny table and two chairs, the small living room with Rachel's crocheted afghans, her aunt's room with her bed tightly made. It all felt hollow for the first time. The cottage had always been a place of safety, and now even the walls themselves seemed to be pushing her towards the door. Jolene stopped by a notepad next to the phone, but couldn't write anything. There was too much and too little to say. She left her house keys on the pad and walked out the door. Okay, so we're early in the book here, Megan, and you're putting this character in a, in a difficult spot. What, which is what uh, an author should do, right? Early, yes, yes. Early in the book, uh, you gotta gotta put them down on their back, and uh, so she kind of moves around a little bit, tries to find some allies, doesn't find them, and and then she sort of figures out she's gonna have to leave uh, the town that she grew up in, the only town that she knows. She doesn't know where to go. She doesn't know what to do. She's got no money. She's got a suitcase with just a few clothes in it, and uh, you're wondering. How the hell is she going to get out of this? <laughs> Good. <laughs> right? Good. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm glad, I'm glad that's now, now, one of the things, you know, you do in addition to this is you continue to pile it on for Jolene. It's like uh, it's one thing after another, which is also part of writing a good novel. But uh, she she comes into contact with men uh, all along the way who don't treat her well. Um, there's various salts in here and so forth. But before we get back into that, um, let's jump to our parallel story for a minute because we've got a scene here where we shift to the mountains, which we find out is sort of where our main character is headed. And we meet Chuck and we get into Chuck's world. 
Uh, you've got a little read here where we meet Chuck for the first time. This is in the mountains. By the way, you said this was based on uh, sort of where you live, so you know the area as part I of do. your yeah. 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 So any of the places that you feature here, are they real places? The, or? the specific places are made up because, you know, the story takes place in 1982. Right. And I was born in 1982 in so, Canada. Okay. So okay. I don't I don't have firsthand knowledge of, of the yeah. stores that were here during that time. Um, but I, I do live in Hendersonville and spend time, uh, all, all of my time, actually, especially right now in this community. Yeah, so just a little technique that you use structurally. You started Jolene, uh, Chapter 1, June of 1982. You run her uh, for a couple of months, uh, you know, up to about November. And then you shift here, and you're back in June 1982, but this time with Chuck and his uh, guardian, Cash, because they're in the mountains, she's at the beach, uh, but they're going to meet up at some point. And so you're trying to give us some grounding for that. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a technique... I, I think a lot of authors like to go back and forth right. between, yeah. between uh, POVs, but I, I really wanted you to connect with Jolene because I, I find when I read books that, that sh keep shifting in, in point of view, that it's hard to connect with someone early on. Uh, but if I can give you like, you know, three good go Jolene chapters, then you, mm -hmm. you get invested. And then when I switch over to Chuck, you're like, Oh no, what, what, yeah. happened, what happened to Jolene? And then we make you wait. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> that that was the thing. It's like, wait a minute, you put Jolene out on the, she she's out on the road with nowhere to go, no money. And, and now what? We're in uh, another place, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So, so, okay. you know, we're, we're going to meet, uh, just now we're going to meet Chuck. Um, and he's, he's, he's in charge of his nephew cash. And so, uh, yeah. And you've got a couple of connected reads here that you're going to connect for us as part, yeah. of this, part of this reading here. It'll give us a good feel for, for Chuck. Yes. All right. Chuck yanked open the front door of Henderson Elementary. Immediately, the voice on the phone had said she needed to see him that instant. It was only nine in the morning and Chuck couldn't imagine what Cash could have possibly done already. Neither he nor the boy ever had a moment of privacy. Between the school and child protective services, Chuck always had a social worker up his ass. Why just one of them couldn't be cute or at least nice, he didn't know. Apparently, the Board of Education and the Department of Child Welfare were where shriveled-up spinsters went to die. He resented being interrupted when he was with clients. He resented the collective tone of their social worker voices, as if somehow they knew he was a terrible parent just by the look of him, his long hair, or those big boots. The last time one of the crones had threatened to take cash away and put him in a group home for his own good, Chuck almost said, all right, just to see the look on her raisin face. But he thought about Cora and about how shitty he'd been to her and how maybe this was the universe's way of making things right. He hadn't been able to get her through high school, but maybe he could get cash. And so um, Chuck gets to the classroom where he finds out that he's been summoned not by the principal, but by a teacher who he'd had as a boy. Um, and so he's sort of extra pissed off. So the teacher starts and she says, Charles, as you probably guessed, I need to talk to you about cash. Her gaze was steady on him. Couldn't have this been done in a letter? I have a job too, a business, you know. His collar felt too tight. He found his eyes and his attention wandering to the rhododendron blooming hot pink outside the window. 
Summer was here. Work was going to get crazy. He wasn't going to have time to sleep, let alone mess with this school nonsense. I didn't, she said, but the situation is more serious than a letter. Did it hurt someone? Mrs. Smith looked at him over the top of her glasses and began talking about how cash was a problem. He doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to me either. If you figure that one out, let me know. This isn't a joke, Mr. Hannon. He's a disruption in class, but worse, his homework is never complete and he rarely hands it in. His test scores are abysmal. He isn't studying. This is something that will hold him back. This is something that he's supposed to be doing at home. This is something you have control over. So how, how do you like the teacher telling the parent that that's something they have control over when it comes to getting the kid to study? <laughs> yeah. Your, your kids who are being homeschooled right now are probably realizing that mom's on the phone. We don't have to do anything right now until she comes back, right? Right. Well, yeah. and, you know, I, I used to teach seventh grade. So I, I've, been at, I've been Mrs. Smith. And so I, you know, I, I understand that the parents don't really have any control <laughs> Right. And so, you know, we've got these two situations, uh, guardians in, in both parallel stories. We know about Jolene's aunt. We're just being introduced to, to, to Chuck, but it seems to me like he's a little bit different uh, in a lot of respects. It's, he's not, he doesn't have this dogma so much as he's just not equipped necessarily because he's trying to, he has a struggling business. He, he doesn't know how to raise a kid. The kid's not doing what he asked him to do. And that seems to kind of be a theme that's unfolding uh, in his story as he's trying to find his sister, take care of his sister's son. And then these two worlds collide, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but they collide in a good way because Chuck kind of gets to be a, a little bit of a hero to, to Jolene in some respect without giving away too much. You know, there are going to be some good parts in this book, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> But before we get to some of those good parts, which we're not going to give away necessarily, um, we have to talk about the fact that uh, Jolene um, is not doing well with the men that she's coming in contact with. We're going to do that after the break. Uh, we're going to have another read after the break where where Jolene is, uh, is, is a victim and she's trying to reconcile it uh, with the authorities to no avail but she's still plugging along. We're going to have a writing life segment. We're going to have a final read. Uh, so please stay with us. Hey there, listeners. Just want to take a moment to uh, say thanks. Don't do that often enough. And uh, I just really appreciate the fact that you've taken uh, time out of your busy schedules to listen to the podcast. Uh, we we try to spend a lot of time putting it together and uh, making it uh, worth, worth your time. And we certainly appreciate the fact that you're you're giving some of that to us, and to the authors as well. Thank you for for being uh, so patient uh, with me as we uh, as we get ready for these things and uh, schedule them out and do a little preparation so we can we can try to make this something that uh, the, the listeners will really enjoy. And and also just for your company, it's it's fun being being with you and uh, talking books and learning about your stories, not only the ones you write, uh, but uh, the ones you've been living. So really appreciate that. And uh, again, thanks to our sponsors who've been been with us uh, uh, for so long. It's uh, it's great uh, to have your support, uh, Park Road Books and Charlotte McMurray Library. Uh, we, we, we really 
really value what you're what you're doing to make uh, help make this possible, as well as the member supporters, those of you who go to our Patreon site uh, and give just a little bit of your money on a monthly basis to help us defray the cost of this podcast. It uh, really helps us uh, get the things done that uh, that we want to get done here. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for for all of you for being involved in this podcast and for for making my life richer and uh, giving me something to do as I continue to recover as a trial lawyer. Now let's find out uh, what uh, is going to happen to Jolene in the uh, second half of the show and a little bit about uh, Megan's writing life. Hey listeners, we're back with Megan Lucas. She's the author of Songbirds and Stray Dogs. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about uh, these two parallel stories here, the main character, Jolene, who's She's been kicked out by her aunt. Uh, she's on the road. Uh, she's penniless. Uh, there are these attempted assaults, not once, but several times. Um, what was it that made you want to write about that? Um, I think it's a reality. Uh, and and there are a number of assaults, uh, but it, it's not like every male character in the book right. wants to assault her. Um there's great male characters like we've been talking about Chuck and um, there's also, you know, just male characters who didn't really care enough to uh, also female characters who didn't really care enough to stop uh, the assault. But I think that it's a reality uh, for many young women, especially young women uh, with little means. Um, And, and I think that a lot of times that those sort of safety nets um, having, having good, having good parents and having money and having, um, adults and mentors in your life when, when you don't have any of those things puts you at a, at a greater risk to, to get into trouble that maybe you're not even looking for, but it also creates this vacuum of who can help you when you do get into that kind of trouble. So was there anything, uh, in, in, you know, that you've learned over the years or come in contact or, any other eavesdropping you've been doing on law enforcement officers or anything or women in general that, that led you to, to want to kind of tell this story about the, uh, the vulnerable, the marginalized who were victims of sexual assault? Well, certainly. I mean, I I started writing this book before me too happened. Uh, but I, I was saddened, but also emboldened, uh, when all of not all of, but a good percentage of my friends started posting, you know, to social media, the Me Too, and the idea that um, this is a shame that I've held myself personally, um, and I didn't know how prevalent it was, and I didn't feel like I could talk about it, and then all of a sudden, oh, you know, this this is something that the majority of my sisters are dealing with too, and and it's not always, you know, a, a stranger in the night. It's, it's usually not. It's usually... Mm someone who has uh, some sort of control over you or some sort of connection to you. And that creates an even more fraught situation, right? Like, like in this novel, she's, she's being assaulted by someone who she sort of knows. And so how do you, how do you tell Mm, Um, when it's, it's not a, it's not a nameless faceless attacker. It's, it's someone, you know, and someone you trusted and, um, someone who all of the people that you could tell know too. And so it just adds all these extra layers of, of complication. Yeah. And I, 
I, I saw that some when I did some pro bono work for victims of domestic violence. Uh, sometimes they're even reluctant to come forward and try to use the system to, you know, reconcile or or take care of the issue because of the feeling that maybe the system, even if it can be working as and clicking on all cylinders, isn't going to give them what they need. And I think Jolene, at some point, which kind of leads into our next reading, decides that she's going to try to do something about this, right? I mean, you want, mm-hmm. you want to set that, set that up a little bit? Sure. Well, she, um, you know, the, the first thing that people always ask me, you know, when I, when they start reading the book is why, why didn't she ask for help? And why, why, um, why didn't she go to the police? And I want to say, well, she's very young and she doesn't have any money and she doesn't have any means. Uh, but she finally sort of has a last straw and she decides that she's going to go and, um, report, uh, what, what she's come to. And I just want to mention before, before we move into this, that, uh, I'm quite critical, not only of the police, but of, of any sort of, uh, power structure or system here. Like, uh, the church didn't support her either. And, um, her family didn't support her either. And so it's not only the police and the, the sort of judicial system that have, that has let her down, but this is just sort of the, the last straw, I suppose. Okay. Anytime you're ready. All right. So Jolene um, has gone to the police and she's been uh, treated very nicely by the you know sergeant on duty and they've put her in a room and she's very nervous, uh, but she's ready to tell her story. And in walks the deputy from the diner, his head down, eyes on his clipboard, cup of coffee in his left hand. Jolene's breath caught in her throat. He looked up and paused. His eyes traveled from her purple cheek to her swollen lip, to the hand-shaped bruise on her neck and the sharp red line, and then back to the clipboard in front of him. Well then, he said, breathing out audibly, I'm Deputy Cutsforth. Let's see here. He asked and wrote down her name and address. Then she related the events of the prior evening as calmly as she could. When she was finished, he took a deep breath. Well, Miss Brody, that's quite a story. I don't suppose, given the dramatic nature of the events, that you knew your attacker. I do, she said. You do? John Webb did this to me. He stalked me. He broke into my home. He threatened me, and then he attacked me. Attacked me while I was naked in my bathtub. He wanted to kill me. He failed. But he tried. Deputy Cutsforth doodled on the edge of the paper with his pen. Do you know this John Webb's address or phone number? No, but he won't be hard to find. He's a lawyer here in town. You know him. He sighed. These are serious allegations, Miss Brody. It wasn't a fun evening, Deputy Cutsworth. I happen to know that you and Mr. Webb have a history. Are you sure this wasn't just a case of miscommunication or a mistake of some sort? Jolene gripped the edge of the table, the bridge of her nose pinched. She breathed deeply to try to hold the tears in. These sorts of statements ruin a man, Miss Brody. I want you to think about his job, his career. Think about his wife. I want you to make sure you're completely sure that these are accusations that you want to make that they are the honest truth of the situation. If this was just some sort of lover's quarrel, perhaps you and Mr. Webb should just work it out on your own and not involve the police. He cleared his throat, but his eyes never met hers. This was a mistake, she said, but it wasn't mine. He nodded, sit tight, he said and stood, gathered his things, and then left the room. 
And then she's left there to sit for a moment, uh, maybe a moment longer, and then she's getting impatient because he doesn't come back. And so she gets up and decides she's going to go see what's happening or maybe even leave. And this, uh, could you pick up with this little scene as well? Sure. She, um, you know, she's been waiting for so long and she's pregnant, so she has to pee. Um, and so she's going to go, she's going looking for a bathroom. And on the way, she finds. Sitting behind a big wooden desk was a man she'd never seen before. But across from him, John Webb's bulk filled the guest chair. Deputy Cutsforth perched on the edge of the desk. He banged the clipboard with Jolene's complaint against his knee as he watched her. Oh, she said, and then waited. They didn't ask her in. They didn't say anything. They just watched her. Jolene felt the vomit surging up her throat. She ran. Through the hall, through the waiting room. She heard the sergeant call to her as she hit the door, but she didn't stop until she was out. Her puke splattered on the pavement at her feet. Her hands were on her knees, but she could hear feet running, the rubber squeak of running shoes and work boots. Take my arm, Joe said. Come with us, Jolene. Only when she was buckled in the wagon did she let herself cry. Cash took her hand and held it between his as Joe drove them home. Okay, it just doesn't seem like Jolene can catch a break. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you know, some some of these aggressions are are physical and, and some, you know, are I what they call microaggressions or, you know, just right. ignoring her or not taking her seriously, which I think is is something that so many uh, women, particularly young women, run into. Mm, yeah. Okay, well, let's take a little breather here from this uh, intense part of the book. And uh, before we come back with our final read, let's do our writing life segment for a minute. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit, Megan, about how you came to writing. Uh, you know, middle school teacher uh, to mother to, to, to you tell me. So how did you get from middle school teacher to publishing? Sure. Well, I've always been a reader. Uh voracious love love reading um and uh, after my children were born and i i was deciding to stay home i uh i suffered uh, just really terrible postpartum depression with both of them but particularly with my son who's who's my second and um i i started to see a therapist uh and she and i kind of came to the idea that i needed to do something uh to ease the frustration of being a person who felt useless at home. Uh, and so we kind of talked about what I could do. And so I, I started, and this is kind of embarrassing, but mommy blogging, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've run into those or moms have blogs. I'm not following any mommy blogs right now. I don't know that I've ever have, but uh, t tell us what a mommy blog is. Uh, well, it could be on a subject of any kind, uh, okay. but it's written by a mom. And usually it has to do with something uh more domestic, you know, how to raise kids or how to DIY stuff or how to bake or how to garden or, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and with mine, it was really more um, dealing with the frustration of being an, an educated professional person who was now at home mm -hmm. and how I was trading in, you know, my dry clean only pants for sweatpants and there's peanut butter on everything. And, uh, you know, my kids are just gross at that age. And so, uh, I did, I, I was able to be very honest, um, in a way that I, I wasn't able to do with people who are close to me. And I found through the, through the blogging that I wasn't the only one 
who mm-hmm. felt that way. And so, you know, I, I started writing a little bit more and I, I wrote a lot of, about um, body image issues uh, in the sort of postpartum, how, you know, my body is, has created these amazing things, but it's no longer feels like it's mine. And I just, you know, you start to sort of just yeah, build a little bit of an audience. And then um, I discovered that some of the things that I really wanted to write about were things that were going to expose uh, people who I loved. And I didn't think that that was fair. So you weren't thinking at that point about writing a memoir because you didn't want to kind of get into all that, but you were writing in a way to kind of pull yourself out of some of these dark places, right? I mean, right. Kinda, yeah. Right. And I don't yeah. read a lot of memoir, but I read um, Wiley Cash's A Land More Kind Than Home. And it kind of resonated with me that this is a book about like real things that happen um, in, in my neck of the woods. It takes place in Marshall, which is just North of Asheville. Um, but I, I started want, started thinking that maybe I could fictionalize some of these things that I wanted to write about. And maybe I didn't have to write about my experience directly, but I could write on a theme, you know? And so instead of um, having, you know, these memoir pieces or these uh, essays about me, uh, I was able to sort of, I think, tell a greater truth by making it not about me and, and making it fictional. So you mentioned, you know, the isolation, being at home, being a, a professional with a degree and now being in sweatpants, but you also had, I guess, the chemical component that came with, you know, having had the child and everything that went with it. Um, you know, I wonder, setting that postpartum piece aside, whether people today with, you know, sheltering in place and everything that's going on are suffering some some similar things. That is, you know, having to be separated from reality. You know, you're, everybody's home in their sweatpants. Now I'm wearing short pants on this thing when we're talking <laughs> today because it's hot, right? Even in April, even in April. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to dress from the, from the waist down when you do these, uh, zooms, right? So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I teach yeah. a memoir class at AD yeah. tech and it's, yeah. it's shocking to me that how many people are writing, uh, to survive. Right. Yeah. To, to create some co- sort of connection to feel like they're not alone. And so I think you're, you're right. We are, we're all at home alone right now. And a lot of people, you know, there seems to be a divide there where people are either like busier than they've ever been, which is me because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, doing teaching. my job from home right. yeah. and teaching my children um, and keeping them from dying. Um, just yeah. for the record. Uh, yeah. But also th- there's lots of people who, who maybe have a, you know, they live alone or they're just a part of a couple. And, and so they all of a sudden have a lot more time and are feeling this uh, isolation a lot more than I am. So this finding your way, you know, out with the writing, did it, did it also point you in the direction of teaching and, and did that lead to what you're doing now with your teaching career at the, uh, I think you teach English composition and creative writing now. Is that right? I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, like you, you say that you're a recovering lawyer. Right. Uh, I don't, I don't think you can take the, the teacher out of the teacher, you know, right. even, even if they're a writer. And so um, I started teaching uh, community college because I wanted to talk to adults because, you know, my whole life was taking care of my children and, and I wanted to talk to adults. And then I started teaching creative writing because I wanted to talk to people who were excited about the same things that I'm excited about. 
So what kind of age group do you have in your creative writing class? Is it a broad group or is it young, young, young people or what? Yeah, well, um, I think my, my youngest student this past semester was 19 and I'm guessing my oldest student was, was in her late seventies, but memoir, memoir definitely skews older, right? You have to have something to write about. Yeah. What's 19, what's 19 you're going to write about? (laughs) Yeah. What happened happened at the party last week, right? Right. He, he definitely had like less material to work with. Although although Jolene has a lot to write about by the time she's 19, right? Right. a lot has happened to her. Right. Uh, but it's a nice change because, you know, my composition classes uh, skew younger. They're, you know, they're majority of your sort of like traditional age community college students. So it's, it's nice to get to talk to people of all ages. So what do you tell your students in your creative writing class on their first day? Write small. Write smaller than you think um, you're going to write about. And we talk about that Richard Price quote. Um, but you don't write about war. You write about the burnt socks in the road. Because so many students come to memoir and, and they want to write about, you know, their their war service or they want to write about, you know, their their spouse and like all 50 years that they've been together. Right. And and so then they end up writing a piece that's just all telling because it's and then we did this and then we did this and then we did this. Right. And so yeah. we we do a brainstorming exercise to dig down. You know, if you want to write about your spouse, well, what are things that your spouse likes? And then think about a particular scene that you can put me in and and write about that. You know, I want to hear about the afternoon that he gave you, you know, a flower on a blanket, you know, at a picnic or, you know, the afternoon that you fell down the stairs and gave yourself a black eye on the banister. You know, I don't want you to write me you know, 500 words on your entire life because that'll be boring. Right. So um, I assume that the students in your class, if they're doing creative writing, uh, might aspire to have something published at some point in time. And you're probably talking to them about that, maybe giving them some of the realities of the publishing world. Maybe you can talk just a second about how you found your publisher and that process and maybe a little bit about rejection and what you tell your students about that. Sure. Um Well, you know, when it comes to getting published, the, you know, the first thing I sort of remind them, because I'm sure they've heard it, but that writing is really so much more work than you think it is. And it, not everything you write is publishable. And so you need to be very honest with yourself and, and a critique group will really help with that. And I don't think that they totally get it, um, but they will, I hope. And then we also talk about the necessity for a thick skin. And I, I talked to them about my most productive year, which was 2018, which is the year I sold my novel. Um, I aimed for 100 projections and I got 76. There you go. Almost met your goal, right? I almost met my goal, but I also <laughs> placed like eight short stories and sold a novel. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. Um, so you got to play, you got to play the odds, right? You yeah. That, that if you just keep filling that hopper, with submissions, um, something comes out the bottom and you have to kind of remember that it's not personal. And, uh, then I, I log into my submittable account and I show them my submittable account and all of the, all of the declines (laughs) (laughs) and how many declines to how many acceptances and, you know, the gray versus green there and they're shocked. But, um, I, I think that's important to show them that even people who, are, you know, relatively well-published, still hear no every single day. Yeah, we had a, uh, 
an episode on that I put up on our Patreon site where we had a bunch of the Charlotte Rich Podcast authors talk about rejection and the number of rejection that they received and then, you know, turned around and had a novel, accepted, got their, uh, you know, got their agent, got their big publisher. So these things happen, but you have to go through that uh, pain and agony to get there, right? Yeah. 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 Now, I, you know, I don't have a terrible story for my novel, um, mostly because I, I had terrible imposter syndrome and I didn't know it was good. And so I decided not to look for an agent, but instead to submit it to a a couple of contests. And so um, I main street rag has a a sort of an open period in the summer and it was $12 and I was like, Oh, this is not too bad. And, you know, you send them a part of your work. And, and so it didn't require writing a synopsis or a query letter or any of those really scary things. Um, and so they took it within like a month and a half. That's great. That's good success. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was wonderful. Now, then, of course, I had that terrible, like, oh, no. But I have to go and tell these other contests that I've placed my novel in like a month and a half. And maybe I, maybe I did the wrong thing and all, all that kind of stuff. But I have had that experience where you have to believe in a piece. Um, the piece that was nominated for a push cart. Um, was rejected 12 times, mm-hmm. and it was a finalist for um, Reynolds Price and for Thomas Wolfe, but uh, it just never went anywhere. And then I sent it to Still the Journal, and it it was a, a runner-up, or a judge's choice by Wiley Cash, and, and nominated for Pushcart. So I keep telling people, like, oh, this story that nobody wanted. Like, that's that's great. Story. I mean, you know, these bios, and I read these bios with the Oscars come on the show, and y'all got some great Great cred, you know, and I, I read the push card thing. It's awesome. It's almost like maybe we need to say rejected 12 times by so-and-so, rejected <laughs> here, and then they got their push card <laughs> nomination, <laughs> you know, to put exactly. it in perspective. Exactly. Uh, I, okay, so normally if I was asking you about your process, you might tell me one thing, but with kids at home that you're homeschooling, with trying to do work over the computer, it's probably changed. But in a normal world, um, how are you able to – write this book? Uh, what kind of time restraints did you put on yourself? What kind of process did you follow? When I was writing this book, I woke up really early, like five o'clock early and wrote, um, from five till six thirty when my kids woke up to get it done. Um, since my children have since gone to school, they're both in school all day. I usually now the, the piece that I'm, I'm working on, um, I'm able to Prior to COVID-19, I was able to find blocks of time during my day. You know, you just kind of schedule it, right? Like, oh, Tuesday I'm teaching, but Wednesday morning I have, you know, work in progress. Uh, and even then that doesn't 100% work because, you know, marketing a novel takes a lot of time too. Right, right. And uh, then, so, you know, you sit down and you're ready to write and then you get an email from somebody saying they want you know, to do a podcast (laughs) or they want, you know, can you, would you be willing to answer these questions for an interview? And of course, of course, of course. Yeah, absolutely. All those things. And so then my, of course I want to be on Charlotte Ridge's podcast. Of course. (laughs) Yes. Obviously obviously, I'm dying. I'm just dying to be on that. And, uh, you know, or, or looking for, you're spending, you know, that time looking for opportunities to reach out like I, I did with you. And, and so, uh, then your morning of writing turns into, you know, 15 minutes of writing because you've, spent the whole morning agonizing over interview questions. Um, so I, I'm not writing as much as I should, and I'm not nearly as disciplined as I should be, but I am hoping, um, 
maybe maybe in the fall when my kids go back to school yeah we'll get back to a process <laughs> get, get back to a more a more serious process because i do really think that it's it's about the number of words that you put on the page yeah okay a couple more questions we got a final read here but uh, there's a lot of pain in this book for jolene how did you put yourself in that state of mind to connect with her with her pain were you drawing on any personal experiences were you just or were these topics that you just felt really close to i mean she suffers some difficult circumstances and i'm just wondering you know and you tell them uh well you don't tell them you show them i guess i shouldn't use the word tell but uh, you show them very well through the events that take place in the dialogue but uh how'd you get in her head well, they say that your first novel is very autobiographical, and I, I would say that that's true, that um, while most of these actual events never happened to me personally, um, Jolene is is a reflection of, of me and, and how I process grief and, and trauma. Um, and so I, you know, there's also that, I think it's Robert Frost, no, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Uh, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. And so I, you, I think you have to put yourself there. And, and so there, there were some definite dark periods in writing this um, where you let yourself go down the wormhole. But I, I think I'm pretty proud of those sections. Mm-hmm. Were you searching for anything yourself in writing this book? Um, I think so. I, uh, I had some kind of unfortunate run-ins with the church as a teenager and so I, uh, and some religious people, um, and so I, I feel like in a way that this is me kind of, you know, that when you get in an argument with someone and you, the next day in the shower, you figure out what you should have said back. Right. I feel like a little bit, that's what this book is. Like, this is, yeah. this is me pointing out all of the things that really right. annoyed, you know, the shit out of me when I was a teenager. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I get to say them now and now they're in paper and, you know on Amazon and stuff. And so I win. Yeah, there you go. That's great. And so, and it's an engaging read, uh, but uh, now that you've got it published, um, you've got a reputable publisher here. What's this meant to you and your writing journey? It's incredible. Um, I think both, both how people take me more seriously as a writer, which is terrible, um, Mm -hmm. but also how I take myself more seriously as a writer Um, I'm, you know, when people ask me what I do, I don't just tell them I'm a teacher anymore. Um, you know, I talk about writing and and being a writer and having a a novelist actually. And yes, you might've seen my novel at Malaprops, you know, that's that's kind of like a little, pat yourself on the back a little bit more, but, um, it, it also creates this terrible sense of, of dread knowing that, um, I am no longer an undiscovered writer who's who's, you know, trash, no one will ever read. You know, it's, I, I feel a little bit like um, Anne Lamott, who, you know, was afraid to leave her house after a first draft because what, <laughs> what if somebody finds it in her computer and, and realizes that she was yeah. really terrible after all. And so there is a little bit of extra pressure there, I think, where um, now I have people saying stuff like, I can't re- wait to read your next one. And, oh, what's yeah. it going to be about? And is it about Jolene? And, you know, like, do we get to find more out what's going on here? Or what are you writing about next? And it, that's exciting that people want to keep yeah. reading your stuff, but also yeah. like, oh. Now you got to write some. Yeah. 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 I hope I hope there's no sophomore slump here. Exactly. Well, you know, you were talking about this uh, – 
this idea of maybe not admitting or saying out loud that you're a writer until you get this sort of book, uh, maybe this author thing. Carrie Knowles, who was on our uh, podcast, and she was the, uh, I think she was the prose laureate, Piedmont prose laureate at some point in North Carolina, and, and she says, Every workshop she has, no matter whether the writer has, has published anything or not, or it's the first one, she has them go around the room and say, my name is, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so sometimes it's hard for people to say out loud, you know, yeah, I'm a writer. But in fact, you should, right? I mean, Right. Yeah. Yes, except that, you know, the next question that people ask you is going yeah. to be. Where's your stuff? <laughs> yeah. Have, have I read anything that you've written or what, you know, what's the name of your book? And before yeah, yeah. before you have a book, then then you feel like. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Person just yeah. pooped on my parade. But um, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. They should say that. Okay, we got a final read here. Um, Jolene's, you know, in a bad spot. We need to leave it that way so that you can, uh, we can get people to go out and buy this book and uh, wonder what's going to happen next. So, anything you want to say to set up the final read here? Oh goodness! Well, she, Jolene, got in the tub and uh, to relax. She's had a rough time. She needs she needs to let it all roll off. Um, and she, she finds that she's not alone. And uh, okay, <laughs> take it from there. The sound echoed in the tub. He gave up trying to pull the cord tighter and used his meaty palm to push her head to the side and her mouth under the water. Jolene's screams turned to bubbles as the water and a taste of ivory soap filled her mouth. She scratched at his hands, his arms, his face, anything she could reach, but he didn't move. The weight of him had finally played to his advantage. One hand on her forehead, one on her jaw. She might as well have been strapped to the bottom of the tub. Panic rushed through her esophagus, burning like acid. Her body was trapped between the sides of the tub and the monster. She could only move her feet. She flailed wildly to kick out the tub stopper to release the water, but she couldn't find it, couldn't feel it with her swollen toes. She kicked more tried to roll over, tried to use her hips to throw him off, but it was no use. Exhaustion swept over. Her legs stopped working. Her arms fell to the side. She opened her eyes under the water. If she concentrated on her peripheral vision, she could see half of Mr. Webb framed by the ceiling through the gray bathwater. Everything was slow and silent. Only the sound of blood rushing in her ears. She hadn't given much thought to her own death, but this wasn't how she expected to go. She thought of the baby and threw up. The bathwater turned peach and Jolene could see chunks of brown floating past. Her eyelids were heavy. She couldn't keep them open any longer. As the left one slid closed, Mr. Webb's silhouette was the last thing she saw through a haze of her own dirt and vomit. She watched him turn towards the door before unconsciousness took her. Okay, yeah, so now we're thinking, what what's going on here? And so we turn to the next page to see what's going to happen, and now we're back in uh, in Chuck's life. So just <laughs> kind of leave us hanging there, and Chuck's just gotten, just gotten his ass kicked by somebody, and he's struggling, and so we got both of these things going on. So, yeah, so good uh, good, good cliffhanger there to make us uh, tune in for the next episode, right? Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. I, that, that's the kind of book I want to read, you know, the one where you get to the end of the chapter and you got to keep going. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Megan, look, I, we could talk all day, but uh, I know you got kids to homeschool and 
you know, things to <laughs> get back to. And hopefully by the time this releases this summer, um, as part of season six, we will be somewhat back to normal. We don't know what that normal is going to look like, but uh, hopefully we will. And uh, information about you and uh, this show are going to be in the show notes. Uh, so, hey, thanks for participating in Charlotte Roos Podcast. Oh, gosh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>